I was up a glacier and um, I was looking out at the, in the tundra at the snow. It's completely silent up, up the glacier. Oh, this is completely true. And up the glacier, when I was attempting to commune with nature, we'd seen the northern lights the night before, right? It was ama- it was totally amazing trip. But anyway, so we're up, we're up the glacier, we've seen a volcano, we've seen a geyser. At the top of the glacier, no sound, nothing. All I could think, and this is true, is bloody hell, Matthew Clayton slagged off Bring On The Empty Horses by David Niven <laughs> on the last podcast, and I didn't challenge him on it. <laughs> And I resented having to think about Bring On The Empty Horses. And then when I got back to Britain, still bubbling away in my right. mind, Matthew, yeah. I switched on the telly and there was, a, there was one of those clip compilations of appearances by famous Hollywood stars on... Chat <laughs> shows. Chat yeah, shows, right, yeah, which we yeah. freelancers often enjoy. And it was a Niven episode, right? Niven did 15 minutes material from Bring On The Empty Horses... Let me tell you, you would kill for 15 minutes material that good. But it's, it was fantastic. It's, but that's because it's, it's, it's the second autobiography. And the second autobiography is always a collection of anecdotes. They've told the life story. Now, what you roll out for the second book is you roll out the funny uh, stories you tell over dinner. And that's what, that's what that book is. That's what this, the, the, the second book is. It's a collection in, of Hollywood stories. You've been in publishing too long. <laughs> you refuse to recognise the essential joie who, de vivre who, that Niven brings what, to the table. Well, name someone whose second autobiography has been better than their first. <laughs> Good luck, Sil. We're all thinking of you. Um, it's Rooney, isn't it? It's Wayne Cody Price. Price. Yeah, always yeah. Cody Price. Uh, Paul O'Grady. Oh, yeah, it's quite a good one, actually. Although well, I'd for the argue, first one but, is the warm-up for the but, second one. But I'd argue that those books are... I mean, he split his autobiography into three parts, didn't he? <laughs> he did. Because actually, <laughs> so I'm going to challenge you on that one. <laughs> they only go up to a certain point in his life. They don't tell the whole life story, do they? Oh, so right. you could check the three-part when, um, when Paul O'Grady sold his autobiography, as it was then, rather than a series of autobiographies, okay. he offered it to... His agent offered it to all the publishers in London as you would. Yes. Rather than invite all publishers in separately to meet Paul, which is what would normally happen, all publishers are invited to meet with Paul in one room at the same time. A fight? Was, yeah. It was one of the most awkward meetings yeah. of all time. Basically, wow. people in pockets from HarperCollins and Penguin yes. and everyone else who'd been asked, with Paul being led from group to group. What did Transworld do then? What did they do to win the, <laughs> win the auction? I don't know. Something Could financial. you uh, guess? Has it a guess? <laughs> you know, I just... I wouldn't like Eat to Eat the others. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books as usual. We're gathered around the kitchen table in the luxurious offices of our sponsors Unbound, the publishers who bring authors and readers together. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And I am Matthew Clayton, the principal of the Free University of Glastonbury and the head of publishing at Unbound. You might notice that I'm not John Mitchinson. I repeat that I'm not John Mitchinson. But don't worry, he'll be back in the next episode. We don't know where he is. We don't know what I he's doing. I suspect it's because today's choice of book could not be linked in any way to either William Maxwell or, <laughs> or Dry Stone Walling. Yeah, the, the two things that John Mitchinson is interested in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, and here's why. Because joining us today at Backlisted are two 
literally two of Britain's best-selling authors. <laughs> not it's something laughable. we get to say. They're master storytellers, <laughs> everybody. They are, they are up there with Archer and all the best-selling authors. But, um, they are, they're beyond they, Archer. They are. And we, what we're going to do is, because there's two of them, that we're going to introduce them separately by name and we're going to try to keep using their names throughout so that you listeners are clear who is talking at any one time. Like in a bad sitcom. <laughs> in a bad sitcom, Jason. No, Joel. Oh, <laughs> oh, already. It started so well. Oh, you'll, anyway. know, you'll know the difference in our voices, because he sounds all right, whereas I sound like a sort of goose with a sinus problem. So <laughs> if you just listen, the anatine croaky one is also, me. I if required, adopt a sort of high reedy Geordie accent. <laughs> we tried this yesterday. We tried your Sarah Millican yesterday. I could do that for the whole well. thing. But, yeah, so you yeah, talk like that. Stots. For an hour. Yeah. That won't be at all irritating, <laughs> will it? Sounds wonderful. We're joined today <laughs> by Jason Hazley. Hello, Jason. Hello. And Joel Morris. Hello. Would you care to explain why, for any listeners who may not have heard of your work, why you are two of Britain's best-selling authors? Because we published some hardback books that were considerably cheaper than other hardback <laughs> books. And no one in publishing had thought of this and before. And smaller, and so smaller. lots of them could fit on one table in a bookshop. Yeah, uh, we did the Ladybird books for grown-ups, uh, which did very well at Christmas. They did do very Well, the thing is, uh, they're brilliant... They're really funny. They did really well at Christmas. And then you bust every conceivable publishing model because they did really well in January and then they did really well in February and March. Well, the, the, ni- and, the nice thing know, for us, and we, in terms of doing a, a, what I hope is a nice thing and a good thing because I like comedy books and we're talking about comedy books today, is that I used to work in a bookshop and the first thing that used to happen in January is you packed all your humour books back into a box and sent them back. How true. Uh, Which meant if you ran the humour section, you had three books in it for the rest of the year. And the really nice thing, because lots of our friends write humour books and so do we, is that that table full of humour books is still there in the shops now. And I think it's quite a gloomy time and people keep dying. And it would be nice (laughs) if you went to a bookshop and there was something that would cheer you up. And that humour table, which I always loved when I was a kid in bookshops only turned up once a year. It's like, the, it's like I don't know, it used to be the Argos catalogue only had toys in at Christmas. Yeah. And now yeah. it's in there all the time, which is nicer. So the toys are out all year now. What were the humour... I'm trying to remember, because I used to run the humour section in a bookshop, of course, and I... I'm Dilbert. Trying... It was mainly Dilbert, Dilbert Farside, Farside. Uh, some Calvin and Hobbes for a bit. Miles, something like Miles Kingston. Uh, Wicked Willie. It was that. I, yeah, I, I used yeah. to... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the, the other thing that you did, though, which was, some would say, was slightly greedy, was you published eight of them. Yeah, well, that's, that's the Ladybird model. They, when Ladybird... Oh, did. Was that the thinking? I well, when Ladybird did, they didn't do the Ladybird Book of Birds, and then six years later, the Ladybird Book of Magnets. <laughs> if birds did well, yeah, as yeah. If they would do it to cover all interests. Right. So that the, the model was Ladybird were publishing a book every three weeks, right? And they're high for forty years. For forty years. Yeah. So the right. idea is Ladybird is volume and breadth, right? Okay, and that was uh, Joel Morris speaking. <laughs> and um, so the book that you've chosen for us to talk about today is unlike any book we've discussed before on Backlisted, but we really, uh, as Joel just said, we wanted to talk about this book and the art of comedy books in general. What is the book, Jason, that the you have book, chosen? It has two titles. Its original title was Bert Fegg's Nasty Book for Boys and Girls, and it's by Terry Jones and Michael Palin, one-third of Monty Python, it was published in 1974 and then republished ten years later as Dr Fegg's Encyclopedia of All World Knowledge. Um, and it's very much uh, one of those comedy books, a bit like Monty Python books or Goodies books, which are just a kind of grab bag 
of bits and pieces, um, yeah. quite a lot of yeah. pastiche, a lot of lists, which I have yeah, to say, yeah. as a comedy writer, they are great fun yeah. to write lists. <laughs> yeah. They really are. Well, Everyone before, loves lists. Before we get on to that, I'm also going to apologise to listeners and say that in the wake of uh, an episode that we did a couple of episodes ago about a book called All the Devils Are Here by David Seabrook, we uh, did such a good job on convincing people what a great book that was that it drove the second-hand pri- price right up and you now can't buy a copy for much under 30 quid. Really? Um, yeah, it's true. The point is that Bert Fegg's nasty book for girls, but a book for boys and girls in its hardback iteration will set you back about little short of £50 at the moment. Wow. But, uh, uh, if not more, but Dr Fegg's Encyclopedia of All World Knowledge, the paperback, the heavily revised paperback... And bigger will set you back, you know... 12 quid or something. 12 quid it's or less. It's just been republished. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 this I, is the republication that I, we... I bought my copy recently because I didn't have a copy of this as a kid. It was in the library. So this is my first copy. I wow! Got, I got it out of the library again and again and again, which is why I liked it. Yeah. There's a special value to something which you read in the library and kept getting out. Yeah. In a way that it's like, I don't know, if you didn't have Big Track as a kid and a mate of yours had Big Track, you envy it, and then as an adult you can buy Big Track. <laughs> I suddenly realised recently I could buy my own copy of Fed and get overexcited. Have I, have I ever told you about my mum in the library? So my mum... Uh, my, <laughs> no. This is, so our local library, I'm not going to name it, um, my mum can't really get out, get out of the house much, so my dad goes and gets her books out of the library. And so that he can keep a note of what she's read, he puts a little pencil mark in there. Um, and he gets out maybe ten books at a time, and he's been doing it for about 15 years. So it's a really small library. So actually within the library, about 30% of the books, like at one point she decided she was just going to read <laughs> autobiographies, and she started at A, and she got oh, about that's A. Good. Really so unambitious got... Alton and Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, that's exactly, hey, exactly what it is. Matthew, I think there's a memoir in that. There is. There's a book in it. <laughs> um, has she been told off? No, and hopefully she never will be. She's 86 oh, years old. Okay. She won't uh, be put in prison or whatever terrible uh, thing happened to her. Um, OK, so Harry. before we get on to Feg and related matters, Matthew, what have you been reading this week? So I've been reading Cormac McCarthy's The Crossing. I've had a life-changing experience about six months ago when I discovered, much to my surprise, that I really love Western books. <laughs> um, wow. I, I wasn't expecting it to happen. You know, I'm a middle-aged man. I don't like cowboy movies, but I got uh, lent a copy of Lonesome Dove. Have you ever read Lonesome Dove? Yeah. That Larry... Larry McMurtry, yeah, McMurtry yeah. book. And I absolutely adored it. It was wonderful. It was really, really long. Not much happens. There's lots of descriptions of the sun going down or the sun coming up. <laughs> and from there, I've got into the, the Border Trilogy, Cormac McCarthy. So I've been reading... I've been reading that this week and been absolutely loving it. It's fantastic. Is that how many Cormac McCarthy's have you read before? Oh, this is my second. So I read all the Pretty Horses before yeah. that. But I think it's funny as well. It's funny because he is such a uh, he has these little ticks, prose ticks, doesn't he? Yeah. So he uses the word and all the time. He's constantly using the word and, and he structures sentences. So I've just got one. Yeah, very yeah, yeah. I want to read you a sentence of his. So this sentence of his uses the word and eight times. Okay. <laughs> So he goes like this, he goes, Then he took the pig and string from his mouth and dropped the loop of it over the muzzle and jerked it tight and seized her by one ear and made three turns of the cord about her jaws faster than the eye could follow and half-hitched it and fell upon her, kneeling with her with the living wolf gasping between his legs and sucking air and her tongue working within the teeth, all stuck with dirt and debris. Now, that's a classic 
Cormac McCarthy Centre. There's eight hands in it. See me, McCarthy. And it's just it's just about animals. It's all punctuation. It's, it's yeah, very little punctuation. Yeah. Lots of fragments and an incredible amount of stuff that's in Spanish. So most of the conversation in the book's in Spanish. I've absolutely no idea what's He's... going on when anyone starts talking. <laughs> and lots of it's about horses. It's about knots and and a whole load of language about horses that I just completely don't understand. Is it, the, still is the, it the sequel to All the Pretty Horses? It's not the sequel, it's the next in the trilogy. So it's... And do you think the publisher went to him and said, well, you've had a hit with All the Pretty Horses, now we need some a follow-up book, which is like horse anecdotes. Oh. <laughs> could you, You're not going to let us run No, I'm not, no. All <laughs> the it... empty horses. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, yeah, that's what, that's what I've been reading. Right, okay. I've discovered Westerns. That's very good. Yeah. Do you think you might head off into the uh, territory of Zane Grey? I don't know who Zane Grey is. Who's Zane the Grey? great architect of the Western. Wasn't, oh. mo- wasn't he the most, one of those people who's like the most taken out of libraries yeah. author? Right. They sort of surprise yeah. people. Incredibly big but someone told, So I, I met a, an editor last week who was a big Westerns fan and kind of bored him with that same story. And he said that the last dedicated Western editor got made redundant two years ago in America. God, that, so which there's is no like, one that Which is rather anymore. like an elegiac Western it in is. itself, it isn't it? Do you think he picked up his stuff and walked out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He did, yeah. And, it's a, and, 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 and this guy, Michael Rowley, it kind of interesting sci-fi editor, and he said that he, was, he used to work at Waterstones, and he said when he started there, there was always a bunch of Westerns. You always had Westerns, but yeah. you don't find them anymore. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever read a Western. I've watched lots of Westerns, of course, but I don't think I've ever read one. It's yeah. gonna, it would change your life for the better. My mind's oh, thank you. Who's the guy that wrote Jackie Brown, the book? I Elmore can't remember. Leonard. Sorry? El- no. Elmore Leonard. Elmore he, Elmore wrote Leonard. Loads of, he wrote loads yeah. of Westerns as well. Did he? Yeah. Did he? I, I had really a block with that. I used to review books on the radio, and we did a lot of crime books. And before then, I, I had no interest in crime. I read some Sherlock Holmes. Right. I'd never read any crime books. I had a prejudice about them. And we read loads of crime books at the end of it. And I thought, what an idiot. I've seen so many crime movies and never thought of them yeah. as not for me. I said, Renan Elmore Leonard and went, oh, God, this is like... I, I read The Hot Rockers. I went, oh, if that was a movie, I wouldn't even think twice about watching yeah. it. And Westerns yeah, are saying, yeah. you watch yeah. a Western, but if someone said, would you want to read a Western, you go, I don't really read Westerns. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. why it's been... It's so unexpected. I didn't, didn't think I'd enjoy it, but I've loved it. It's so, really Andy, what yes. have you been reading this week? <laughs> OK. I'm going to go through these as quickly as Is it going to be... Because when we get to this point, yeah. it's all... You, you always... <laughs> You always slightly show off, can I say that, by, by uh, saying about it, 15 books? It so. is, it is. So we recorded the last episode, they're coming out in a slightly different order, but uh, I had been recommended, shortly before my trip to Iceland, a load of books about Iceland. Right. I have now read all those books about Iceland. Oh, really? Okay. And How, I've got many to, uh, How many? Uh, seven. Oh, my God. And I was in a jeep uh, on the way down <laughs> from the aforementioned glacier and... The guy driving the jeep said, OK, we're going to take you past the house owned by a writer, you probably won't have heard of him, called Haldor Laxness. And I said, I have, I have heard of him. I've just, I've just finished one of his books. Actually, I really loved it. I've just read one of his books, The Fish Are Singing. And our guide said, you are the first tourist I have had in 20 years who has heard of Haldor Laxness, let alone read anything by him. He's like, he won the Nobel Prize in 1955. <laughs> He's Iceland's national laureate, basically. And uh, I said, oh, God, I'm so, I'm so proud. I'm so proud. And he said, no, I'm so proud. Oh. It was really great. That's a lovely moment. And then you made we, a man happy. Yeah, yeah, and then we stopped and looked at Haldor Laxness's swimming pool. <laughs> that was, <laughs> it was great. And, uh, so, and anyway, so this guy, this Icelander driving the Jeep said... Have you heard of a book called Salka Valka? Oh, the name the of the character is Salka Valka. 
I said, no, I haven't heard of it unless they changed the English translation title. And uh, so I looked it up when we got back to the hotel. And Salka Valka has been translated into English, but it hasn't been available for 50 years. I put a thing on Twitter saying, has anybody got a copy of this? Because the cheapest copy online was hundreds of pounds. And within two minutes, the brilliant Orkney Library... Orkney Library came oh. through, eh? ...had said, yeah, we've got one here. Here it is. And sent brilliant. me a photo of it. So it's, it's on its way to me from Orkney... Wow. ...on an interlibrary lending loan for, like, three quid... Right. Isn't that amazing? Oh, amazing, that amazing though. Going Libraries going and Twitter. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. So there was that. I was at the All Tomorrow's Party Festival at Prestatin in Wales. So you were. So you were. I ran the, uh, they compared the literary salon. Oh, with, salon. Um, a salon. salon. It was a salon. holiday camp. Is with, that uh, with First a, time that the word yeah. salon and pontins. I was, I was surprised to see it on the programme when I arrived. <laughs> and uh, so I was joined by uh, the comedian and author Bridget Christie. Yeah. And the author Dan Rhodes. Yeah. The brilliant Dan Rhodes. Bridget read from her book and Dan read from some of his stuff. And Dan also read a bit from, the, from Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, Ooh. which was very funny. Uh, and then I read a short story by my now beloved... Elizabeth Taylor, uh, called The Flypaper, which is a short, short story, really quite creepy, and it really worked, it really worked. The thing about The Flypaper is that it was made into a Tales of the Unexpected. It's one of the only non-dull Tales really? of the Unexpected, right? Wow. So I read the story, and then right. on the way down, this is how sharp we were, on the way downstairs, Dan Rose went, oh, I've just realised that you and I have read separate stories by Burton and Taylor. <laughs> oh, yeah. We didn't even we didn't even <laughs> notice it until it was too late. So I'm enshrining that here. And the last thing I want to mention is I am fifty pages into a book called Eternal Troubadour. I like the title of that as well. The Improbable Life of Tiny Tim. No, oh, Tiny Tim. By Justin Martell, which I will talk about more next time because there are only fifty pages into it. It is absolutely sensational. Really? It's wonderful. Oh, it's, one, it's such a wonderful book. And what's, it's just such we, a wonderful before book. Before we move on, what's the one Icelandic book that we should all read? I'll tell you what, actually. It was recommended by... This sounds like crawling, but it's true. It was recommended to me by somebody here at Unbound, uh, Zander, I think, called Letters from Iceland by W.H. Auden and Louis McNeese, okay. which is the most ramshackle collection of bits and pieces that they wrote on a trip to Iceland. Some, <laughs> some poetry, some travel writing, some ranting, a, a series of letters to one another where they adopt the, <laughs> the persona of schoolgirls. <laughs> it's a fairly, what? yeah, it's a fairly peculiar collection. And yet at the end of it, it's a bit like All the Devils Are Here, you know, in, in as much as it, it doesn't quite hold, all yeah, the it here. doesn't quite hang together, and yet it layers up into something that is really evocative right. of the whole experience of travelling somewhere like that. It's you know. mind altering, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it really is. It, it, apart from anything else, the sheer the oddity that I was out there for about three days a couple of years ago on a work thing, and the just the fact that it was I was sitting in the restaurant finishing some food at the hotel, and I thought. It must be getting late, mustn't it? Um, it must be about 10 o'clock or something. And the answer was, no, it was half midnight, but the sun was still out. 
So obviously then I went to bed and it yeah. got dark at around half past two for about an hour and a half and then the sun came up again. So just having that experience of having your body clock completely hijacked by by the, the you know by the by the length of daylight out there, that's odd enough. Before you even get round to the fact that there's no trees and <laughs> it's been raining for four hundred years. What, what, you know. But we like we arrived the day after twenty thousand people had massed in the square underneath our hotel Was window. It one tenth of the electorate. Yes, one tenth of the electorate had turned out to overthrow the government. No, they, and, no, they were coming for you, and you, they were a day well, early, so they decided to know, overthrow the government. We arrive. We arrive. We get in the hotel. Our lovely peaceful break. There's people banging drums. <laughs> you know, it's really noisy. And I went down and said, "Look, we might have to move rooms because I respect your right to <laughs> protest, but I'm not going to sleep." They went, "Don't worry, everyone will go home at eight o'clock." <laughs> it's true. In Britain, that would end when the riot police were called. Yeah. In Reykjavik, eight o'clock. Well, you see them all look at one another and go, "Okay, we're done now." They all went home. Five wow. minutes later, they picked up their litter with them. Wow. This is so brilliant. Such wow. a civilised and wonderful people. Anyway, so yeah, letters from Iceland. Or Haldor Laxness. Haldor Laxness. Yeah, if you can get it sent if you can get it. Yeah. Actually, there are, there are other Haldor Laxness. Other Haldor Laxness titles are available. <laughs> so let's move on to Bert Fegg. But before we talk about Bert Fegg, I'd really like to talk a little bit about the Lady Bert books. Now, you have both worked on several comedy books over the years haven't you which books have you have you worked Several on between great you comedy books. Yeah. well we did we, the first thing we got the first thing we did that sort of got us up and about and noticed was a thing called the Framley Examiner which started oh, as a, as a started as a website it's a parody local newspaper and that was we put that up in about 2001 a little bit after September the 11th and we put it up and within two weeks we had two book deals for it and we published that with Penguin then we did a historic Framley which is the museum for the for the town uh, after that then we did Bollocks to Alton Towers and another one of those which was Guys to Little Tourist Attractions. Just say, yeah, we should Which, just say Bollocks to Alton Towers is a whole... It's not really a comedy book, is it, Bollocks to Alton Towers? It was, just, it was yeah. a comic travel writer. But yeah, so yeah. that was straight... And, then, and that then, was a big bestseller as well. Yeah, that, yeah that, that was the number one travel book of that year, I think, because Bill Bryson took a year off. Um, we sort of slid <laughs> in, because Palin was away. Um, and then we, uh, then, but then we, but then we did... Uh, we'd done sort of ghost-written or assembled stuff for people and helped with... with comedy books of this sort we did the mrs brown's boys ones and uh, things like that we also i just remembered today our first job straight out of school was doing the russ abbott comedy Fun annual book yeah which was, uh, but I can, uh, it, <laughs> it was it was as i recall neither of those things <laughs> but i did i did a weird a weird job on that which was they got the cheapest artists they could get to do it which at the time included all the guys who did 2000 ad all the judge dread artists because they were spanish and were really cheap so I, one of my first jobs was to uh, tip X over cultural errors in Carlos Esquerra's pictures of Russ Abbott. So I was sort of changing his baseball outfit into a cricket outfit. And I was sitting there as a 19-year-old 2018 nerd going, I can't believe I'm tip Xing over the man who created Judge Dredd to make, I don't know, Basildon Bond look more like a British secret. Ludicrous. So, yeah, we, we, we've done this. And we, we come from a background of doing uh, these parody books and pastiche books and, and we I, do pastiche we write for television as well yeah. doing pastiche. and I should also declare an interest in my career as an editor I've worked in this area quite a lot and I've so worked right. on so we, we you know we all have experience we're going to come on to talking about what it's like working on one of those books which have, which have cost the publisher a lot of money uh, mm. and which uh, you know which when you're dealing with celebrities or who may or may not be involved with the writing of the book let's pick this up again shortly but let's talk a bit about the Lady Bird books. So you've got a track record of working yeah. on these books. How did the 
Ladybird books come about? Did you well, approach we, them or did they approach we, you? We approached them. We noticed that we were, we were laughing and saying, who would we like to have a book published by, whether it be Faber or someone? And then we'd laugh and say, wouldn't it be great on your CV to say you'd written a Ladybird book? Because we're huge Ladybird fans. We collect them and we have prints on our walls and things like that. And it suddenly struck us that there weren't any Ladybird books anymore. They'd stopped publishing them. They'd do them for... The, the brands still exist, but they weren't Ladybird books as we knew them. They were different. And then we noticed they'd done reproductions of some of the 60s ones that were selling in boxes. Or eight of them had come out as a reproduction mm-hmm. set of in a big store and shopping with mum and things. And our brain suddenly went, oh, hang on. There's a factory that makes Ladybird books that smell like Ladybird books and look like Ladybird books, and they've worked out a way of budgeting it that you can publish a colour children's book that is a Ladybird book. And so we just... We came up with the idea of, of the central conceit would be that Ladybird hadn't stopped making Ladybird books and the audience had grown up with them, a bit like they make a Star Wars movie for 46-year-olds now. <laughs> the idea being they would still be addressing that audience in the same voice, but the audience would have yeah, grown yeah, up and yeah. would need to know about different right. things. So we came up with the idea of Ladybird books for grown-ups. We sent an email to our And just, just to refresh people's memories, the titles of some of the first tranche of books are... Uh, the, there's the Ladybird book of the hipster, there's the Ladybird book of the midlife crisis... The Ladybird Book of the Hangover. Shed. The Ladybird Book of the Shed. Dating. Dating. How it works the husband, how it works the wife. We've just done how it works the mum. Yeah, the mum was a big hit in our house. On Mother's Day, surprisingly. The dad is coming out for Father's Day, unsurprisingly, also. But yeah, it's uh, common experiences, but look through the eye of that Ladybird certainty, that voice. And using the original artwork, which we also realised it was impossible financially to hire commercial illustrators of that calibre anymore because they don't exist. And they were all put off by me tipexing over their artwork <laughs> in the early, also, late 80s. But also, what a much bigger undertaking it would be Anyone, to commission eight books worth of secretly, original artwork, pe- right? People, people yeah. come to us and sort of say, who did the artwork? And you went, you do understand that, A, that's impossible, too expensive, and also, <laughs> that wouldn't be as funny. The joke was that we were yeah. repurposing the original artwork, you'd yeah. recognise it, and the rule was we wouldn't paint in iPods and, and, and beer cans to get the joke, we would just crop the picture yeah. slightly differently. If we needed to, we wouldn't touch them. They would remain as they were. So the joke is you recognise that this isn't a picture of a hipster cafe. It's something from the gingerbread man. Uh, so the, the audience were in on the joke. So what did you do? Did you just go through your old ladybird books and pick, find artwork that you liked and then scanned it in? Or? No, we sent, uh, we sent an email to uh, a friend of ours at Penguin and said, we've had this idea, ladybird books for grown-ups. We think it's a bit of a no-brainer. What do you reckon? And he said, hang on a minute. Um, That was roughly the point at which I got on a flight to New York. And by the time I landed, we had an email back from him saying, here are the keys to the archive. Go. And they'd basically given us access to uh, an online archive of 11, it's now 12,000 images from Ladybird books because a very clever soul called Ronnie Fairweather at Ladybird a couple of years ago said... We need to scan all this artwork and tag it so that it's searchable. And pretty Mm -hmm. much the rest of the building turned around and went, no, we don't, what? What do we want to do that for? And so turns out she was right. Um, She was very pleased when we started doing these books because she said, you've made me look sane again. They all thought I was mad. (laughs) Also, also Ladybird had... Penguin bought Ladybird, didn't they, in the 80s? Is that right? I think so, yeah. And they had... uh, Lots of the original artwork has gone because it got sold off. 
Yes. And they bought some of it back. But yeah. so what you're working from is well, actually an attempt to reconstitute they were going the to whole trash archive, it. right? They were going to yeah. trash it. Yeah. It was going to go in skips and it got saved. Uh, the VNA was offered it and they, they turned it down and it's ended up at university. But it, it was touch and go for a bit because it had no use. Yeah. They didn't know. But oddly, that's that feeling that people do when people wipe television programmes. Yeah. The people who made it don't appreciate that for a generation it was very, very redolent and, and, and beautiful. So they've kept it. And now we've kind of, and we didn't intend to do this, we've kind of brought, we have a funny thing, because we, we live in the past a lot, because we're past T-shirts, so we sort of look at old programmes and old telly and old films and things, we're obsessed by the texture of things. So we loved Ladybird, and Ladybird is something we thought about most days. We, I don't know, it's in part of us. But when we remembered Ladybird, the public's reaction was, oh, I remember that. And you went, oh, had you forgotten it? But mm-hmm. oddly, I think even Ladybird had forgotten it, or even mm-hmm. Penguin had mm-hmm. forgotten yeah. about Ladybird. And they, they suddenly were shocked by the fondness. I mean, Ronnie had been fighting for it, saying, let's, let's yeah. do more yeah. merchandise, let's keep this brand alive. I've said to them, I can't believe that those fairy tales aren't available as a box set. Yeah. And they went, yeah. oh, we hadn't thought of that. And you think, God, you, you don't realise how loved this brand yeah. was. So the first wave of approval for us bringing Ladybird back to do comedy books with it was uh, good. We're glad to get them back. Uh, the other thing that I think was the idea that made this work is that we'd seen Ladybird pastiches done before on the internet, and they, they, the earliest one we found was from 1959. Mm-hmm. They date back years and years and years. Uh, and the usual joke is that you swear. Mm-hmm. It's a basic juxtaposition gag. Mm-hmm. It's, the, it's the rapping granny joke from most American comedies. You're not expecting the granny to swear. Uh, so usually it's sort of, there'll be rude words and Peter and Jane yeah. next to each other. That was what most... And we said, well, we're going to be Ladybird authors, so if we write them as if we've been employed by Ladybird, which we have, yeah. we have to abide by the same rules as Vera Southgate did when she wrote the fairy stories or, or whoever wrote the, them before. You have to write it in that key. And I think that yeah. means that yeah. kids can pick them up and grown-ups liked that joke that they were being talked to in that well, I remember you telling me about this last year, this series. I think you'd done the first lot. And you were telling me, I remember you saying to me, even once you set your own rules, it's actually really quite tricky to get the jokes to play. So it isn't just as simple as slapping a bit of text onto a slightly silly picture like you might find on a greetings card. If you want to make it really funny, you have to take time to balance out the exact, it's rhythm of words with as you would in all comedy book. of course it's a kids book yeah. the, the funny thing about it is it, it's, it's a comedy book which are oh, quite hard and it's a kids book which is quite hard because you're writing haikus or short song lyrics you've, you're writing a very short distance and if you get it slightly wrong it just isn't funny yeah it's about getting it syllable perfect because comedy is is music it's all the notes have to be right I mean if the, the our favourite comic book is the meaning of lift by uh, Douglas Adams and John Lloyd, and that is a that's an absolutely astonishing masterpiece of comedy. Yes, Every one of those capsule descriptions in it is very short, and if you remove one word, one syllable, they fall apart. It's one of those yeah, yeah. perfectly written. I, the thing about meaning of lift is, I love the meaning of lift, and I don't quote it very often because unless I've got the book in my hand, it's not it funny. Right. Yes, I yeah. need to read it. Uh, I can learn some of them, but if I get a word in the wrong place, it just it dies. It absolutely dies, and it, it's. And that was a very influential book for us growing up, Guy. It's, yeah. it, it had the same values as the Ladybird books. They're short descriptions. The first thing you do is you think of an observation and then you spend eight weeks phrasing it. <laughs> until, right, it's funny. until it lands, yeah. right? Yeah. So, Jason, okay, ha- here's one. Look. Yukon, one who possesses an unseemly collection of Marmite. <laughs> on the might you can't <laughs> yeah, yeah. you can't improve I'm that so how do you go about Jason how do you go about putting one of the Ladybird books together 
Well, once we'd arrived, at, we approached them and we said, look, why don't we do the Ladybird Book of the Hipster? This sounds like fun. And they said, yeah, can you do eight? So we, so we decided along with them uh, on the titles. And then there are two kind of parallel tracks that we follow. One is to think about and write about the subject matter, whatever it is, and research it in some cases as well. And the other is to look at the pictures and write things next to them. So sometimes the words come first, sometimes the pictures come first. Mm. So we can think about, we, we think about something about a midlife crisis and identify some area to write about and then go, which image would go to that? Or you can go through the archive and you can type in, if you're writing a book about hangover, you can type in bacon and have a look at some pictures. Or tired man. Right. Tired man. Yeah. Sad okay. woman. Yeah. Um, and the then, cover of the Hangover book in particular is wonderful, I think. Yeah, that was, a, that, was a very, that was a very happy accident. I should be careful about how I word this, because it is a picture of a man being talked off a ledge by uh, a policeman, <laughs> which is and it's, it's a wonderful painting. It's a 1970 illustration by Robert Ayton from a book called Danger Men. But it's, a, it's, an, it's an, an interesting example of how, how very straightforward Lady Bird could be sometimes. They could put in a kid's book an illustration of a man who might be about to end his own life. Um, he isn't in, in this case. Yeah. It, look, it looks like he might be about to, but I don't, I don't know whether he survives. I haven't actually read the original book, but, <laughs> but it's very, very alarming. But when you look at that and you think, wow, that is a bad hangover, isn't it? Yeah, it just yeah, falls yeah. into got, your lap. A lot of people sort of said, oh, it's amazing. You've taken Ladybird books and you've made them grown up and you want to go, they always were. The great thing yeah. about Ladybird books, they were about grown up subjects, whether it's King John. I read the one on the Magna Carta recently. I didn't know any of that information. They're definitely, a grown yeah. up can learn from them. Yeah. There's that, that st- a possibly apocryphal story about the Ministry of num, 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 buying the book of the computer and giving it to all their staff because it's the best yeah, introduction yeah. to basic computing you can get. So they were adult. They were they were they were adults talking to children, but well, not in a sort of uh, <laughs> a, a talking down to them way. Yeah, not in a sing song way. Well, speaking of adults talking to children, uh, it strikes oh. me that the book that we're talking about today, Bert Fogg's Nice Good Voice Girls, <laughs> is a terrible corruption of that idea. Now, I'm not. What we normally do on Batlisted is we normally offer a little biographical. A picture, but I am assuming that most people listening to this know who Terry Jones and Michael Palin are, as you said earlier. Why, why don't we assume that? One third of Monty Python. Assume, yeah. I'm just going to read this little thing that um, Michael Palin uh, wrote about Burt Fegg's Nasty Book for Girls, because Boys and Girls, because it will tell people what, what the book is if they're not familiar with it. Here, he, This is what he says. In 1974, Terry Jones came up with a drawing of a strange, rather dangerous-looking character with an axe called Bert Fegg. Terry and I liked him very much, and we wrote a book around him called The Nasty Book for Boys and Girls. It was successful enough for us to return to him ten years later in 1984 when we updated Bert Fegg to Dr Bertram S Fegg GBH, Parkhurst, (laughs) and created a new book around him called Dr Fegg's Encyclopedia, misspelled, of all underlined world knowledge. Uh, Though it was Terry whose drawing brought Dr Fegg into existence, most of the other illustrations in the book are the work of Martin Honeysett, a fine and distinctive cartoonist. The idea of the book was that it was an educational work that had been mysteriously given to the most unsuitable man in the world to edit. (laughs) And this enabled us to fill it with all sorts of silly things like Aladdin and his terrible problem, a new new pantomime, as well as animals like the Patagonian shoe-cleaning rat and the West Bromley fighting haddock, and new religions like Fegism, the wonder technique that will increase your memory and... Oh, what was the other thing? (laughs) 
the extracts I read from Dr. Fegg's encyclopedia in various stage appearances went down so well that we decided to make the encyclopedia available again. Uh, we'll keep you posted as news of its second coming. Meanwhile, here are a few tasters. And indeed, this edition that's out now is, yeah. is it back in print again? Yes. So how did you two uh, encounter this book, I'm presumably just, when you were children? I've just suddenly thought of something, by the way. One of the people we write for, we write Philomena Kunk for uh, Charlie Brooker's uh, Screen Wipe. And the joke there is she is the worst person to have been entrusted with a documentary series. And, uh, and Which is always one of my favourite jokes, is that you should see behind the character to which idiot employed this person. And that's a joke probably from Bert Fay. Which idiot gave him this joke? Uh, I found one in the library. It's where I found mine. Uh, oh, it was, it was yeah. in, I loved Python, and so I'd pick up anything that was... I was Python books were really magical because you didn't have videotapes. That is and a big the records, thing, I think. But I think I... I got them from the library a bit when I was a bit older but the books were in the house my dad had a copy of the Monty Python's Bock the, the, the hardback version of the, the Bock uh, when it had tits and bums uh, the, a weekly look at church architecture hidden under the cover which was <laughs> dirty right. oh, yeah, but my, my, the, the two great things about my dad's copy of the Bock one was it used to have fingerprints on the cover but he lent it to a friend who was a plumber who cleaned it before returning it <laughs> so mine was the only copy with no fingerprints on the front cover uh, and it was also kept on a high shelf in the house and I wasn't supposed to look at it till I was 13 you know what so, so, I, so I climbed up uh, onto chairs where my dad was out and I would read it illicitly. So there's, there's a forbidden knowledge about Python books and I saw this in a library. I knew it was Terry Jones and Michael Palin who I liked and so I used to take it out of the library a lot. I must say, re-reading re this for what must be the billionth time, <laughs> but the first as an adult for some <laughs> years, I really reminded me, it was really evocative to me about how rude... <laughs> and shocking Monty Python was considered to be. All sorts of things are forgotten about Monty Python, and that's one of them. You know, yeah. that one of the books, I think the Bok, the second one, was, was, was there was some obscenity. It was because of the prosecution. Of, a picture of Graham Chapman in the, the new yeah. Masturbation, the difficult one. Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's, a, yeah it's just, um, yeah. I, I, but Feg was, was in the library, and it was more Python. And anything that's more Python. Same way as I, yeah. I was really excited when Time Bandits came out. It was more free Python. This was published with a sticker on the first. I am told that the sticker on the front cover of the first edition for Christmas 1974 <laughs> was a Monty Python educational product. Oh, right. So clearly the publisher was trying to draw your eye. What about you, Jason? Absolutely. Where did you find this book? Uh, well, I basically, once I'd, once I'd latched onto Python, which was kind of in the early to mid 80s. Um, and realised that there was a book, uh, the Papa Bock, bought that, then saw there was the Big Red Bock as well, bought that, and then th and just basically went on a sort of collecting spree of trying to collect anything in print that was related to Python. So yeah. even down to the script of um, Eric Idle's play Hello Sailor and stuff like that. You know, <laughs> I remember so, that, yeah. So I had a... I had a <laughs> and this was just obviously one of the things, one of the better things as well, I suppose I have to say. I, I mean, I think the Python books, in terms of this genre of book... These are obviously incredibly important to this. They're the Beatles of, of these. They're yeah. the you know Aren't when, they? when, just, when yeah. they're done first and they're inventing it and they do it best and the production's brilliant and everything. They are just amazing. Once you've done it, everyone else is doing it again, and all they do is remind you of how good the Python books were, yeah. even when they're brilliant. And the also the, of, the amount of work in those books as well. The Python books, just yeah. just the design is absolutely There's, astonishing. There are. I was reading up about this. Like, so they're edited, they're driven mostly by Eric Idle, yeah. the Python books, but they are uh, the big red 
book, yeah. which is the first one, yeah. which sells like quarter of a million copies, is a huge bestseller. Uh, is the graphic design on it is by Derek Birdsell and somebody called Kate Hepburn, and the Papa no the Bock later the Papa Bock, which is the following year. That's just Kate Hepburn. But considering they were made analog. Yeah. rather than digital in the yeah. mid-70s. Again, I don't know if people are familiar with them. They are full of design tricks and paper engineering and what we call tip-ins, little, little mm. books that have been inserted inside them. And indeed, there's one at the front the, the of best, oh, this is, Feg, this is yeah? The reason you can trust Feg is you open it up, and one of my favourite jokes, apart from Spot the Deliverate Mistale, which is from Feg, and I, <laughs> I think of that joke probably every day. Yeah. The opening of Feg opens with two, with two little sort of tip-ins. One is, erratum, this is the wrong book, which is brilliant. <laughs> and then the other one is, congratulations, you have won Barnsley Town Hall. <laughs> Go to Barnsley and ask them to wrap it up for you. Uh, it's, it's just, you know you're in safe hands. And those are both the kind of jokes they did on their records and in the TV show. And they're done, the erratum slip is, is done, is inserted like a real erratum slip. Yeah. The Barnsley Town Hall looks like a Reader's Digest offer. They look like the things they're pastiching. And we get asked, we got asked this with Framley a lot and with Ladybird. The only way you can ever make something look like the thing you're pastiching is to seize the means of production and use the... People say, how do you make Framley look like a local newspaper? It's designed on the same software as a local newspaper. It takes as long to yeah. design as a local newspaper. Yeah. The reason the day-to-day is the best news satire television's ever done is they use the actual graphic department that do news things. Right. You, and, and you light it like... There's the pilot of the day-to-day is lit like a comedy show and it's not funny. When it's lit yeah. like Newsnight, it's funny. And the joy of the Python books is they use the right typefaces, the right paper stock, the right graphics. The yeah. photo manipulation is as good yeah. as a real advert. Or the, the, we were looking at the old... real. The thing is, they are real. Uh, and labors of love isn't quite the right term, but they are the the amount of time and care and attention that must have gone into making those books. I mean, I thought it when I read them when I was a kid. Yeah. But now I've actually been involved with making books like this. They're so tricky to get right. There's a funny, and thing, so... with, there's a funny thing with data, with, with time as well. I remember looking at these, uh, and obviously I was older. Uh, so I was, I was from a later time than Python, not long after. But when you watch Python on television, television didn't look like Python. Only when you watch archive television do you notice that Python did look exactly like when they did a, yeah. a, a roundtable debate with politicians and you watch the real election 74, they got it spot on. But as a kid, it looked like Python because television did, didn't look like it anymore. But advertising and books and graphics and magazines, you are still surrounded by and they don't date quite as quickly. So when I looked at a Python book, I knew that was exactly what a Sunday supplement looked like and a Penguin book looked like. So I yeah, got yeah, the yeah. joke. We were talking about it with, with Victoria Wood having died and how carefully she made her documentaries and things and TV look exactly like the real ones and how much that blew my mind when I was a kid and then when the day to day came out or when Spinal Tap came out it looked exactly the same mm. and the, the trick is you work as hard on yeah. the pastiche as they do on the real one when we did Touch of Cloth with, with uh, Charlie Brooker for Sky the detective uh, parody we did the rule with that is we got a real pe- the people who make Endeavour and Wire in the Blood to make a detective parody yeah. and shoot it the same way and every time we went for a shot uh, the director would go, quick, quick, everyone's serious. We're going to win a BAFTA. We're making red riding. And everyone did it straight. Yeah. yeah. And the Python books and Feg, when they do a pastiche or a parody, it looks like the real thing. Yeah, they don't straight. break the frame, right? No, no and, the, and the other thing they do, and Feg is a great example of this, so is Touch of Cloth, actually, and it's something that we do, which 
some people, some editors in TV don't like this, but it's much easier to do in a book, which is to get a gag in everywhere you possibly can. <laughs> yeah. Right, you don't leave yeah, any yeah. area untouched. So the prelims page of. Uh, of uh, Dr. Fegg has got uh, other books by Dr. Fegg. The Bournemouth Killings, an explanation. The Bournemouth Toenailings, what really happened. Where I was on the night of the 26th. Why I have never even been to Bournemouth, and so on and so on. And that, that, at the bottom of the page, you've got yeah, the hang on, hang on, though, stale. You missed the You missed the best bit. For children, I spy the police. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is and it's one of these books where we've we've done this. We've always done this. We did it with Framley and we've done it with Touch of Cloth. And we've done it with the Ladybird books. On the back of the Ladybird books, there are other books in the series included, and there's just five ridiculous titles, you know. Because the idea is you've got to try... We, we've all, we try and get a gag in everywhere you possibly can. They've done the same thing here, Paley and Jones. They've, they've just it's, stuffed the thing full of gags. Yeah. I think it's to do with the way you write... We, we were talking about this as... as for humour books, there are two different ways you could do like a Christmas tie-in toilet book. And one is to think of an idea, like 101 Uses for a Dead Cat, and do that idea again and again and again and again, as well as you can. Uh, so basically, it's a, it's a book of, of cartoons or a book of jokes or one thing. That's your joke. The other one is the throw absolutely every idea you've ever had at this and fill all the corners of this book. <laughs> yeah. Like a rag mag. It's every single yeah, yeah, joke yeah. you can think of. And that, as an art form... I mean, I think the ladybirds are sort of halfway between the two of them because they're sort of, they are one idea. But we literally have put every single idea we've ever had about the midlife crisis into them. We've filled them as far as we can. But these, as an art form, you... When you look at, though, the not annuals that were done. Yeah, they were tie-ins for Not the Nine O'Clock yeah. News. Yeah, and there's, there's, they, they did them as desk calendars, they're parody desk calendars, and they're, so they're 365 pages long with a joke, at least one joke on each side, so and 760... They are, they, the they are called that. Not 1982 and Not 1983. We were talking about them earlier. The, they were published by Faber and Faber. They are at the tail end of the popularity of Not the Nine O'Clock News. Not the Nine O'Clock mm. News is already on the way out by mm. the time those books are published. They're edited by John Lloyd, and the list of contributors to those books. Douglas Adams, Richard Curtis, Andy Hamilton, Helen Fielding, Kim Fuller, etc, etc, etc. You know, they are the absolute best British comedy writers but, who are around. As people who really appreciate that, we ended up talking for bizarre reasons to Richard Curtis not too long ago. And I happen to mention, because obviously despite what Richard Curtis is known for now, to me he's the guy from Not Nine O'Clock News, who one of my sort of writing heroes as a kid. And so I just said, God, I mentioned a couple of my favourite sketches. Did you, did you write those? And he did, so he was very happy. And I said, and the books? And he went, I remember John Lloyd saying, right, we've got to do 720 pages of jokes. <laughs> um, right, go. And just send them out. And he said, it was one of, those, one of those things John Lloyd tells you to do. And then you go, oh, God. And he said, the, his, his solution, because I imagine he's of a certain class, he went to a friend's house uh, and they had a library. What I'll, say is, I'll call it, in my, in my world, a bookshelf. Uh, so he went to someone's house and locked himself in the room with the bookshelf in and said he started at the top left of the bookshelf and pulled off what was at the top and it was like a bird-watching book. He said, right, I will do some funny jokes about bird-watching. Then when he'd done that, put that up. Next one was a Bond novel. Wow. Right. I will do some parodies of Bond. Super. The Highway Code. And that is how you write one of these things. You look at every book you've ever seen and you pastiche them. You... Right. you, you you take this, in the same way as you would do if you were doing a news satire, yeah. and you look at the newspaper and do a satire of it about each one of those stories. You can do it from a bookshelf, and the joy about these books as parody books, if you liked books as a kid, is that they are about the love of books, and they are parodies Absolutely. of every sort of Absolutely. book you've ever seen. So they are basically. Someone said it about Park Life by Blur. It's their record collection just done as an album. Yeah. And this is every book <laughs> you've ever seen. So we see a desert island book should be one of these sort of portmanteau I, books. 
you should take this away and this is all booked it is all world knowledge think, it's was, not even a joke it is all world I was yeah, thinking yeah. this the other day I was, I was listening to the White Album again and thinking why is this my favourite Beatles album and the answer is because it's got so much pastiche on it it's got yeah, a bit right. of everything mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a bit like it's like Feg's book here because Feg's book has comic strips in it it has a, a famous five story it's got cookery pages it's got make and mend stuff it, it's, got, it's nothing, got bits of everything nothing in it is longer than a good solid poo you take it. You take it to the toilet, and, and you will not get red legs yeah. reading a bit of Bert Feg. It'll be over. I, 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 oh God, I think it's my because we we have a thing. We, one of the things that's terrible. We work in TV a lot, and the hardest thing in TV at the moment is that no one makes broken comedy anymore. They make a lot of sitcoms, and occasionally you'll get sketch shows. But my favourite form of comedy of all is is the big chocolate box full of a bit of this and a bit of that. That is. The yeah. day to day, or something. I yeah. love that. And no one makes broken comedy, or it's very rare to get it. And we, we get to do it with Brooker sometimes because we get to do a sketch and then a lot of news. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like stuff where I don't know what's coming next and I've got no chance to get bored. Yeah. I've got a butterfly yeah. mind. And these books, if you're a comedy fan, they're, yeah. there's, they're all the different. It's like the White Album. There's, I, a, there's a jazz song and a rock song. And a, I think the thing that's so interesting about um, Bert Fegg is that so this is written, this is published late 74. Right, it's all written by Palin and Jones, who in the same year have written most of series four of Monty Python, mm. have written their contributions to the script of Holy Grail as well, presumably. They've also turned out an album. They've also contributed, presumably, to a, a Python book. But they've got enough <laughs> to write a book that's full of stuff. Yeah. The other, the oh, other, and also they're just warming up for ripping yarns. So they basically yes. their ideas yeah. brewing at the same time. And it's all writers have got this. This is the joy, the real joy of being asked to do one of these books. Is there's a phrase called bottom drawer if you're a writer, and people sort of always say they, they sort of say, "Oh, you're going to come and contribute to this sketch show, or whatever." Don't don't want anything from your bottom drawer. And I love our bottom drawer. It's full of ideas no one's bought yet. And I didn't put them in the bottom drawer because they're rubbish. I put them in the bottom drawer when someone said no to them. Yeah. Not because I didn't love them, though, because they didn't sell. And our bottom drawer is full of stuff. And whenever we get a chance to write a big, put everything in there, you go through your bottom drawer and find all your favourite abandoned, orphan, ugly children no one else likes. And they're your favourite <laughs> ones. Yeah. So the... what, what are your favourite bits from the book? What are the, the standout yeah. passages for Jason, you, you think what's of? your... Um... There are several. One is, the, one is the recipe for everything pie, which I'm going to have to put my reading glasses on for this because it's very small print, readers. The, res- the, the recipe for everything pie, which basically can, uh, uh, simply get a pie dish and a pastry crust and fill it with everything: dishwater, Ajax scouring powder, <laughs> bleach, soap, steel wool. There's a long list which ends with, and finally, the key ingredient that makes the whole thing blend into one of the world's truly great dishes: the Prime Minister of Malta. <laughs> um, again, uh, comedy is music. There you go. Word yeah, perfectly. Yeah, yeah, the other, the other thing, the absolutely. other one I like is that there is a lovely review of. Um, of Bert Fegg's symphony in, in J-flat. In J <laughs> Dr Fegg's nasty symphony in J-flat received its first performance behind London's Festival Hall last night. <laughs> One word. In, it, was an, it was an extraordinary occasion. Dr Fegg, the composer, claims to have had no formal musical training and there were few there last night who would dispute this as he put the cello to his lips for the so-called first movement. The sharp sound of splintering wood against teeth as Dr Fegg took the first bite of the beautiful 200-year-old instrument counterpointed with the low groans of the 200-year-old cellist from the Royal Philharmonic <laughs> lying bound and gagged behind the dustbins and now coming round for the first time. <laughs> and it carries on like that. 
Uh, I'm a big fan of... Uh, I think we've borrowed this that we keep spotting things where you go oh god that's where I got the idea we bumped into Palin actually recently and went up to him and said do you know what we might have borrowed some stuff from Feg subconsciously along the way sorry about that but he was very nice about yeah, it as in you, you you absorb this stuff and then and spit it out in your stuff. but there's a, there's a great joke structure which is learn to speak French in four minutes is an advert and it basically is an advert down, down the left hand column it's sort of no heavy books no long lists of words no tedious vocabulary no writing no reading there is no learning at all and then the right hand column it's got people's uh, testimonials and it says I have recovered much more quickly than I would have thought possible the marks are all gone I am able to lead a perfectly normal life I am well on the way to recovery and what's missing is any description oh, of the French course I love that my other favourite joke which is really simple because we love this start, this shape of a joke it's, there's, a, there's a cutaway diagram a beautiful cutaway diagram of the new safety aeroplane and at the front uh, tagged in the images number three 56 pilots <laughs> it's just an image of all of them sitting patiently in the front in case one of them falls over do you know one of Payton the things and Jones, I, and yeah. Jones love that gag they love too much of something too much is always funny we were we were at a, we were at a voice record this morning where someone is recording for reasons we won't talk about some of the text from the Ladybird books um, and there is a, there's a thing in there we realise, oh, we do this gag a lot, we love too much and too little, and there's a thing about dating in the future, um, and it says here in the year 4,000 million, <laughs> which is it's obviously it's so far ahead that it becomes completely absurd, and we love that. The, we love the, that the, the number of joke shapes that we have borrowed or were taught, actually it's not even borrowed, you, no, you are taught learn, them yeah. by these books. These books are yeah. basically a primer. They're like uh, they're like doing scales. They're, they're, they're lessons in how to play the comedy piano. And at the end of it, you, if you study these books, all of them, the goodies books, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you will understand how to do parody, pastiche, and the shape of jokes. They're, they're just brilliant primers. I, I found, I mean, the thing I found going back to this, from having, you know, uh, as I say, having worked on quite a few of these books, is... There's a moment, I think, where the public, basically the publisher who's commissioned this is coming off the back of two massive Monty Python hits. Hmm. Go- and they're basically saying, well, you can do what you want. Just get it in on time yeah. and we'll, we'll, we, won't, <laughs> we won't mess about with it. And what I found with designers particularly, when you work on it, if you work with a good designer on one of these books, they love working on them because they are almost like creating... 96 or 128 page portfolios yeah. of oh, different yeah. styles yeah, yeah. that they can tackle. You know, I know. Um, it's showing a, off, isn't it? It's a lovely. designer called Tony Lyons, who you might have worked with. I think he's done at least one of your covers. Uh, he, he did the first League of Gentlemen book with me, yes. and then he did the League of Gentlemen scripts book. And the he did League the of Gentlemen book as well. Yeah. All those books, you know. <laughs> took him months of overnight work to get the gags out of the, their heads onto yeah. the page in a way that played. When, when, we, when, we, when we did Framley, because we do, I mean, same as we do with the Ladybirds, we design them to the page. We send them finished artwork. No one designs the books for us. When we did, uh, even when we did Bollocks, Taught and Towns, I put the page numbers in by hand. We send them finished artwork. When we did the Framley books, which are parodies and pastiches, they're these sort of books. The job of turning what was a series of notes into a finished book which I did the lion's share of with my brother for them. You go insane doing it. Every idea yeah. that took mm. two minutes to think up takes an hour to design a mock 1920s railway yeah. poster. Yeah. And you put that, that effort in because you know that's the only way to make the joke work. And I remember about 
two months into doing Framley that I, a bit like if you go to Tokyo, I imagine, and you can't speak Japanese, all the ambient noise of the, the advertising is, you can't hear it. But when you could speak Japanese, you suddenly, all the signage would suddenly yeah. come. I found that with fonts. Two months into designing one of these books, I could hear the names of fonts I was walking past. <laughs> so if I walked up a tube carriage, every advert would go, Garamond. News Gothic, because I'd learned to recognise them from a distance, so I could do a pastiche of an Atari catalogue, because I'd learned that's hammer fat. I know what it is. We're very lucky today, because Steve Colgan, who is sitting on a sofa over there, a wave at Steve, there we go, had brought in a carrier bag of some books, (laughs) which I feel we have to mention. He's brought in, like, some of the Python books, and... He's brought in the Utterly, Utterly Merry Comic Relief Christmas book, which I remember very well. Lovely book. The Not Books, yeah. the Goodies books as well. You, you were saying earlier, Joel, that the Goodies books are still funny in a way that perhaps the Goodies TV show I hasn't think, quite survived. If you survived. want to understand how funny the Goodies were, the books are the way to do it. Because, uh, again, I think the way that television dates you are unfamiliar with the language of a 1970s gang show. So you watch it and you go, this is a bit old-fashioned, it looks like up Pompeii. You don't realise how radical it was. Whereas if you look at the books, you go, well, I know what an old furniture catalogue looks like. I've seen them before. And it's much easier to read what they're pastiching. David Quantic and I were, were sitting... Ah, former, former guest at former, Backlist. We're sitting, qu- quoting, the, in the goodies books, there's a, there's a fake, like a, a, a Argos catalogue or a Kays catalogue from the time. And we could just do all of it verbatim from remembering it from when we were kids, there's, there's a number 16 in the catalogue. Green thing to hang from the ceiling will provoke hours of entertaining conversation, e.g. please take that green thing off the ceiling. <laughs> comes complete with red thing. And the thing that we've got fascinated by is number 20 in the catalogue, and you can't find it in the pictures. Number 20, incredibly realistic working model of two nubile young French people at it like knives. <laughs> and both of us went... I don't know what at it like knives means. It might be on a theatrical slang, but you went, that's the right word for what they're doing. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I don't know, I'm seven. I don't know what at it like knives means. I will probably say this inappropriately at dinner at some point. It's taught me a rude word. And it, always had a bit, and it always had knockers in them as well, which was important as a young, as a young yeah. person. There were always dirtier pictures in comedy books that always, you were allowed to always see. Always on a quest for those. <laughs> <laughs> it seems as good a point at any at which to stop. <laughs> <laughs> works of art and they've yeah. got nudity yes. in them. That's right. Uh, thank shower, you. Shower cubicle pages of <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jason, who was speaking then. Thank you, <laughs> And thank you, Joel. Hello, me. <laughs> thank you, Matthew Clayton. Thank you. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, thank you to producer Matt Hall, and thanks once again to our sponsors Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at BacklistedPod. And at our page on the Unbound site, unbound.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, goodbye. Happy birthday, Rachel. You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.